You're listening to IMJ On Air, podcast of the Internal Medicine Journal. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. In the December edition of the journal is an important paper about rates of early readmission to hospital among cirrhotic patients. Symptoms such as ascites or fluid overload, encephalopathy, gastrointestinal bleeding and infection are markers of decompensated cirrhosis. The median survival of these patients is about two years unless they're able to undergo liver transplantation. Hospitalisation rates for cirrhosis are increasing in Australia, in part associated with the high prevalence of obesity and subsequent non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. More concerning still is the frequency with which discharged patients are readmitted within 30 days. One systematic review of 180,000 patients put the average readmission rate at 26%, but the studies cited varied greatly in their inclusion and exclusion criteria. The only study of this kind in Australia reported a much higher rate of 42% at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane, but that included only those patients who had undergone paracentesis at their index admission. This knowledge gap prompted researchers at the Austin Hospital Liver Transplant Unit in Melbourne to go looking for themselves. They found, in fact, that readmission rates were worryingly high and that many would have been preventable with better adherence to practice guidelines. To unpack the study, I invited the lead author, Dr. Carl Vaz, and the IMJ's editor for Hepatology. So here we are, recording in the Pomegranate Virtual Studio for another episode of IMJ On Air. Today's guest host is Professor James O'Ben. James, you're a Director of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Sunshine Coast Hospital and Health Service and an academic at the University of Sunshine Coast. Uh, I've seen your name on a recent consensus document for management of hepatocellular carcinoma. What else should we know about your roles and interests? Well, thanks for the introduction. Um, I relocated from the UK um, some six years ago now where I used to be um, a liver transplant physician and clinical researcher in London. And, uh, you know, What drives me really is quality, both in clinical care and indeed in academia. And uh, I like to focus my research efforts on uh, maximising the outcomes of patients under my care using evidence-based medicine. And um, so this is why this particular paper by Dr. Vaz and his colleagues really resonated with me as a a busy clinician, as well as as a clinician researcher, I think it's really important to look at um, to look at what we actually do and how we're spending our resources, and especially because cirrhosis is increasing in prevalence and the complications of cirrhosis are going to increase in prevalence. I think we really need to know that we're providing the most optimal care we can in hospitals and um, and make that as efficient as possible. So this, so for that reason, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Vaz uh, on the podcast today. Um, he's the lead author of the paper looking at 30-day readmission rates in cirrhosis. And uh, perhaps, Dr. Vaz, you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Professor Byrne, um, and thanks, Mick, for also organising this. Uh, so I'm a first-year consultant gastroenterologist, having trained in Victoria um, across the Alfred Hospital and Austin Health. And this paper was... Um, really the brainchild of two of my clinical supervisors, Associate Professor Adam Testro and Associate Professor Paul Gow um, through the Austin Liver Transplant Unit. They felt that we had an extraordinary amount of readmissions and when they looked into Australian data, they didn't see any, despite this being um, really a growing problem. And as you've appreciated 30-day readmission rate has been published internationally and largely from the North Atlantic. And one of the reasons for that is it's mandated 
um, to report 30-day readmission rates um, in the US as part of the Affordable Care Act. And there was really a dearth of data in Australia and there may be geographic variations in the cause of readmissions and, and then how well particular interventions may work. So that was the rationale for looking into this study. I think I think it's vital because there are differences between the Australian healthcare setting and the US and indeed the UK where similar work has already been done. But could you just sort of take us through the design of the study, how you collected the data and maybe just uh, outline some highlights from what you managed to, to find out? Yeah. So this was a retrospective cohort study um, looking at all cirrhotic admissions into our unit. And when we journeyed out on this study, we actually planned to look at five years of data, but that quickly became very difficult to do in in terms of the data points that we were looking at. And so we narrowed it down to focus on a single year of admissions. Um, We accepted all cirrhotic admissions with complications of cirrhosis and our data acquisition was through ICD-10 coding for cirrhosis and its complications. And our exclusions um, were patients who died in hospital, of course, um, patients who had a liver transplant in hospital, um, or patients who were discharged either to another hospital or palliative care ward, um, really because that would then um, impact on our, I suppose, readmission rate thereafter. Um, We then looked at a number of demographic clinical features, liver prognostic markers, Um, at the point of index admission and um, discharge from index admission and really try to characterise what the readmission rate was but the reasons for readmission. Um, I'll just shout out to a a number of the junior co-authors on this paper, particularly Melissa Chu, um, Jordan Crawford and Katrina Tan who um, all spent a long time helping with data collection, but also Ronald Ma, who was the costing data analyst for this paper. So ultimately, we had close to 700 admissions in that 12-month window of 2019. And following our inclusion and exclusion criteria, just under 430 um, were included in this analysis, and that was amongst 179 patients. Um, And of those... 46% were readmitted within 30 days of index admission. And then looking at the reasons for readmission, um, close to 50% were due to either fluid overload, which encompassed not only ascites, but um, hepatic hydrothorax and peripheral edema, um, and infection. And and we know that these are two of the most common, um, if not decompensating events, complications of cirrhosis. um, And they are aspects of care that we can improve on, um, which I'm sure we will touch on in terms of novel models of care for for trying to reduce that readmission rate. I I just wanted to take back a a step um, because I I guess one of the things when I read this uh, paper, it really sort of reflected my sort of daily workload. Could you just speak to the the causes for the indication for the original admission? Um, Absolutely. So when we looked at the index admission actually the majority were for miscellaneous causes given we we didn't exclude patients for being admitted for non-liver related causes, and that was a smattering of alcoholic hepatitis and um, 
post-therapeutic interventions for HCC. But when you took those out, the major causes of index admission were encephalopathy, fluid overload, and infection. And each of them had um, a 17% proportion of that index admission. And when you took out the miscellaneous causes, each of them accounted for a quarter of the remaining um, reasons for index admission. And I think, you know, obviously, the the thing that's reflected in that is that patients can be admitted with more than one complication of cirrhosis, right? So you can get patients with ascites and HE and uh, acute kidney injury and variceal bleeding, etc. Correct, and that's not reflected in yeah in 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 the primary uh, reason for for admission. So I wanted to just ask um, about the ICD-10 codes. Um, there has been some work done in Australia about the accuracy and sensitivity of ICD-10 codes for identification of uh, patients with cirrhosis or complications of cirrhosis. Patricia Valerie and colleagues did a study of this in, um, I think, in 2020, um, and they found that the performance of things like ascites, variceal bleeding, um, acute kidney injury were, were quite good. But the one thing that wasn't very accurately coded in the ICD-10 AM model was hepatic encephalopathy. And I, I just wondered if it was possible because your your readmissions, um, hepatic encephalopathy seemed to be quite lower or lower than I would expect as a cause for readmission in your in your data. Do you think it could have been a coding issue or yeah, it well could have. Um, or maybe you're, be- you're maybe you're better at man- managing encephalopathy down in Melbourne than we are. No, I think coast. you're right. It was actually lower than what has been reported elsewhere. I suppose it was the most rational way to determine our cohort, and had been something that I and other authors had used for other audits and publications for case ascertainment. But you're right, encephalopathy actually was lower than what we would have thought, and I hadn't thought about that. It may well be a coding issue, um, and it may well be related to how we as junior doctors also document in, in, in the notes and, and on discharge. But I think the key point is that um, really the, the sort of the Achilles heel of readmissions is all about fluid overload, ascites, electrolyte management, isn't it? I, do you want to speak a bit more about... Um, maybe in a little bit more detail about how that how that played out in your readmission data. Yeah, so just going back to that, in our readmission data, almost one in two patients was readmitted for either fluid overload um, or infection. So 29% for fluid overload and 20% for infection. And I think what was also interesting was looking at and making an adjudication of what readmissions were potentially preventable because a lot of these complications of cirrhosis have quite good guidelines on how we can manage them. You know, in terms of encephalopathy, we have lactulose and rifaximin in our armamentarium for ascites. There's, of course, um, fluid restriction, salt restriction um, to pharmacological measures and, and paracentesis and so on and so forth for other um, complications. So we looked at which readmissions we felt were potentially preventable, and 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 that too was enlightening in terms of one in five patients we felt were potentially preventable, whether that be through preemptive 
um, scheduling off acidic taps or early consultation with either a liver nurse or clinic to uptitrate diuretics um, or even to just look at patients who are on appropriate prophylaxis for SBP. So that really, to me, uh, I thought was one of the most important parts of this paper was actually looking at what we can actually do to prevent readmissions. Uh, absolutely. I think that's one of the strong points that comes out of your work is that um, it's not just the inconvenience to the patient of a bit of a readmission, but the cost, because you also looked at costs of readmission in your paper. And, you know, what you're telling me is that one fifth of that expenditure could have been avoided. Yeah, that's that's right. We We were lucky enough, as I said, to have Ronald Maher, who was one of our senior costing analysts at our hospital involved in this study. And, and he looked at the total cost of readmissions, which um, in that 12-month period was just under $3 million. And as you say, a fifth, so $500,000, um, was potentially preventable. And, and that's, you know, a crude cost, not taking into consideration what... Um, medical care would cost to to actually reduce that readmission but that's just a crude cost of the readmission alone and, and of course these, these hospital costs are tend to be far more expensive than outpatient procedures um, and outpatient models of care sure and i think you know forms a basis of uh, of a very sound business case for for trying to put in models of care that reduce readmissions i just wanted to um talk a little bit um in a bit more detail about the readmissions it, what struck me was that I think your median time to readmission was, uh, I think, was it seven or nine days? Yeah, 11 days. But the interquartile range was down to five days. So, yeah. So so clearly, I think if you're wanting to try and intervene to prevent a readmission, then, you know, we're going to have to try and arrange for people to be seen in some sort of outpatient setting within a week post-discharge. Um, how feasible is that? And do we need to reinvent the way we look? We do post-discharge care for cirrhotics? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, it, probably in the current climate and model of care, it's not. But we are still stuck in more of a um, reactive, symptom-based, episodic model of care rather than what uh, the cardiologists do with heart failure in that they have adopted... A chronic disease management model of care that is more longitudinal, um, patient focus, and proactive rather than reactive. There's a few other centres, not only around my town in Melbourne, but across the country that are looking at novel me- methods to deliver um, this chronic disease model of care for our cirrhotic patients. So, as you might know, Alan Wig has done a pilot study. Um, looking at really intensive input from um, liver nurses um, very early post-discharge, so within the first week post-discharge. And unfortunately, that didn't quite meet the primary outcome, but paved the way for a larger study that is, I think, just completed recruitment. Hopefully, we'll have some results on the utility of that CDM model in a larger multi-centre cohort um, out of Flinders. But not only Alan... Um, then Natalie New, who's one of my colleagues at Alfred and who's um, a master's student enrolled through Monash looking at novel methods of 
multidisciplinary care in the outpatient setting with a liver well program that incorporates not only nursing but other allied health such as physiotherapy, neuropsychiatry, um, addiction medicine and a few others. And, and again, as you say, Professor Ben, the first point of contact post-discharge is actually within that first week um, because to try and reduce the readmission rate, we really have to intervene early. And actually, we can look not only upon discharge, but pre-discharge. And, and some of this work has not only occurred in the US through Elliot Tapper's group in Boston, but also um, in the UK. And there was a study out from Catherine Smethurst in Newcastle in the UK that looked at a decompensated cirrhotic discharge bundle, which is really just a checklist looking at the more common decompensating events, the therapeutic strategies we have, and to say, okay, what what can we do for the patient before discharge in terms of implementation of these therapies, in terms of education, to try and prevent the, the rate of readmission? So Catherine's group didn't show a statistical reduction in that readmission rate, but numerically was threefold reduced in, in the group that um, was randomised to the discharge care bundle prior to discharge and those who had standard care, which was just doing as what we do, which is discharge the patient and, and somewhat hope for the best. But Elliot Tapper's group did have a more marked reduction in readmission rate and, 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 it, and it led to a 40% reduction in not only all-cause readmission rate but um, encephalopathy-based readmission rate based on this checklist too. So I think that the implementation of these sort of checklists and bundles standardizes care but can actually have a marked benefit in reducing these patients from coming back into hospital what do you think about those other studies oh look i, I mean i, I i'm always a, a fan of Elliot, anything that elliot tapper does he's uh, <laughs> he's a fantastic clinician researcher and um, and that particular study was, was looking at a simple paper-based checklist which then was incorporated into the electronic medical record, I'm sure is a very low cost mm. intervention and certainly did seem to pay off. And I think there's there's definitely um, some room for that. Um, I think we'd all like to think that we we don't miss things and our, our patients end up on the, the correct evidence-based treatment. But I don't know whether you saw there was a recent audit from Golo Anelstein's group in yes. Sydney, um, which showed that, you know, Patients weren't having an outpatient appointment scheduled in about 45% of cases, and an hepatic encephalopathy prophylaxis was only used in about 50% of patients on discharge from hospital. And I think this reflects maybe in some hospitals, patients with cirrhosis aren't being cared for directly by hepatologists, perhaps. Yeah, I, I did see that study. I think it was a bit scary to see that some of the metrics that we would try and uphold ourselves to aren't met. And I, I think you're right that we try and pride ourselves on not missing anything but it's it's human nature and these, these sort of easy interventions to incorporate things into an electronic medical record just take the burden off the clinician in memory recall we've done a similar thing with um, incorporating sorry to go off topic but incorporating standard of care measures for um acute bleeders whether that's variceal or non-variceal bleeders who come in from an emergency and and I, I I don't have any data to present on that, but I would love to see our unit do that to see if that improved the prescription of medications and therapies and time to endoscopy, having had that in the electronic medical record. Can I ask a 
you know, probably quite naive question from a non-clinician, but um, I'm always interested in the podcast that we do about uh, clinical reasoning and, and, you know, the implicit biases that might direct you down the wrong path. So uh, the, 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 pro, the index presentations, as you said, were 42% were alcohol-related, liver disease, 13% were viral hepatitis, uh, another 11% had a bit of both, and then um, and then the remainder. And then there's this split of readmissions, and you've said that some of those were preventable. Where along the pathway do you think the intervention, the, the checklists or whatever, ne- need to take place? In the primary presentation, are, pa- are patients funneled down a pathway already depending on the type of uh, you know, an infection versus fluid management? Have have different types of thinking behind them, and, and and the mistakes are made at different points. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think what Professor Byrne raised earlier is the earlier the better. Um, Catherine Smithers' group did it forty eight hours prior to discharge. Was that that's when their um, decompensated cirrhosis discharge bundle was looked at and ticked off? Um, whereas Elliot Tapper's group did it every single day on the ward round. So it was just a checklist that they went through um, every single day to say, does this patient have encephalopathy today? Does this patient have ascites today? Um, and it doesn't matter what you came in, what, which presentation you came in for. No. You, you asked the same questions, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it's it's, re- it's highly relevant in cirrhosis because as, and we didn't have this granularity of data in our paper, but a lot of these patients uh, admitted maybe for ascites, but they have encephalopathy and metabolic derangements at the same time or admitted for variceal hemorrhage as their primary um, uh, reason for admission, but develop encephalopathy, subsequently develop ascites. And and we, you're right, we have this representative heuristic of, of trying to treat the presenting problem and and although we try to do our best, may miss out on some, some of these things. So, for example, that patient who does come in with variceal hemorrhage and hepatitis C, we may think, okay, it's really important for them to be on their vasoactive drugs and um, antimicrobials for a set period of time, check their blood pressure and hemoglobin and um, colour of their faeces on a daily basis. But maybe we're not so good at those moments of actually examining them for ascites and, and, and the simplicity of a checklist says this is a common complication even in the context of bleeding. We should think about it really every day in, in hospital and, and there are just so many competing interests for a junior doctor and me not being so far away from being a registrar on a busy ward round that it you can understand um, the frailty of 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 cognition of the treating team where where we do our best but still miss on some really important metrics. I, w- I would agree. And, and um, just as an extension of that, one of the things that uh, that triggered a change in practice in the UK was a, uh, a report into, um, it was the National Confidential Inquiry into um, uh, Perioptive Deaths or the NCPOD Inquiry, which was looking at... Um, deaths are related to alcohol-related liver disease. And um, there were multiple points in the patient's journey at which uh, suboptimal um, management was identified. And that led to the generation of the what's called the decompensated cirrhosis care bundle, which has been endorsed by the British Society of Gastroenterology. And that's been shown in a number of audits and small studies now to really 
from the point of deployment make such an impact in terms of improving survival because people are getting the right care at the right time and it's just very very simple things like doing a diagnostic acidic tap on presentation to hospital even if the patients come in with a with a complication not related to ascites you know some of those patients 10% of them will have infection uh, and unless you look for it you won't find it so these these things are really important and um you know Medicine is a bit more than just tick boxes and, and um, following lists, but um, you have to have some sort of structure to your process and to, to not miss the low-hanging fruit. I wanted to just to talk a little bit, because we have this assumption that all readmissions are bad, but I think sometimes they can be a sign of a service that's truly trying to do its best for its patients, seeing patients early in the clinic, identifying patients that would benefit from a shorter admission um, uh, to, to get them fixed up rather than wait until they're literally coming in through the, the front door of the, of the hospital via the ED. And a bit like at the time of COVID, people were staying away from hospital. I think some readmissions can actually be a proactively a good thing. And I was interested when I was looking at um, the data that... Uh, around readmissions related to infection and how it appeared that more people who were on primary prophylaxis against bacterial peritonitis were readmitted. Did I read that right? Perhaps, Carl, you can expand on that. Yeah, that's that's right. I I must say I, <laughs> I, I may have had a different lens of that when I looked at it. And, um, yeah, I'll just go for, for the uh, audience Forty-one percent of patients who were readmitted were actually on SBB prophylaxis, compared to seventeen percent of patients who subsequently were not readmitted. I actually looked at that and thought these patients who had been readmitted, you know, even just in, in the other demographics, were a, a slightly sicker cohort. They had more complications mm. of liver disease. Um, they may have had a greater interaction with our health service or other health service with regard to cirrhosis in the past and therefore that is why they have been on SBB prophylaxis um, but not so much in terms of that sort of benefit of a readmission. I might address some some other data that's not mine that um, speaks to that point a little bit more and that, 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 that again is Alan Wiggs' study from 2013. Um, again, that study that really was a pilot study that randomized 60 patients in a two-to-one fashion to um, an early discharge to a liver nurse with intensive liver nurse input in the community versus standard care. That actually led to a greater numerical number of readmissions. And then on a post hoc analysis in, in a real world kind of sense, they looked at Flinders um, University Hospital's um, overall readmission rate compared to um, another similar sized hospital in Adelaide and, and how they performed together and, and, and Flinders had an overall in the long run lower readmission rate and a two and a half fold lower um, mortality in their patients who you know in a, in a center that was a bit more proactive about liver related care so although they're in study, readmission rate may have been higher maybe they were as you say quote unquote good readmissions because you are targeting patients early in their decompensating journey or re-decompensating journey rather than waiting for them to come into extremis with 
ACLF or multi-organ failure. Mm. And, and it is easier to get over that hurdle early on than as the organ failures mount. Yeah. Um, talking of, of medications and uh, I just, because the, the other benefit of these studies is they give a little insight into clinical practice at certain, at certain centers. And I was, um, you know, you probably know that across the world, the issue of primary prophylaxis against SBP is is quite contentious. Mm. Um, there's a big study going on in the UK at the moment called the aseptic study to try and answer this question definitively because a lot of the studies that we that looked at primary prophylaxis are a little old and the there is concern about quinolone resistance and indeed mm. multi-resistant organisms across the board in patients with cirrhosis so i just want, wanted to maybe you to comment what what your unit's policy is on primary prophylaxis for sbp yeah it's a, it's a good question i don't think we have a unit policy on primary prophylaxis like there is in other units for low protein ascites or, or or those decompensated mm. the ones on the liver transplant wait list um we we do think about primary prophylaxis more than say your non-transplant patient um but there isn't as far as i know and i could be wrong and maybe some of the my supervisors listening into this may kind of slap me on the wrist for not knowing this i don't think there is a unit-based protocol for primary prophylaxis um, certainly for secondary prophylaxis, there is in terms of using either Bactrim or Norflox or directed yeah. care according to the to the microbe. That's a really interesting point about the antimicrobial resistance. I was listening to a recent podcast actually through Easel and Arun Sanyal was talking about that and in his practice has totally changed to actually not offer primary prophylaxis to patients for that problem with multidrug resistant organisms in, in a cohort that is already, you know, Im, immuno-exhausted and at higher risk of infection. Mm. What, what's your practice now? And has that led to your unit um, maybe thinking about doing away with primary prophylaxis for SBP? So we don't, we don't do primary prophylaxis um, at all. Yeah. Um, the American guidelines suggest you should only use it in people with advanced liver failure or, or renal impairment. Uh, and the easel guidelines suggest it should be used with below a certain um, protein count in the ascites. But uh, to be honest, I I see real problems with multi-resistant organisms in um, in our in our patients, and I, I just think that that um, I prefer to wait, wait for the results of the aseptic study and have a little bit more clarity and confidence in what I'm doing because the the primary prophylaxis studies, some of them are very good, but they are quite old and a bit like we've seen in variceal bleeding mm. sometimes those older studies cannot be applied to the current standard of care mm. um, so I think there's there's some equipoise and I, I prefer to wait until we have some hard data I mean more of a clinical question I was struck that um, the use of non-selective beta blockers tends to be low in both mm. the admissions and the non-admissions group is there do you have a comment on that yeah, it's a really good question. As you were talking about the SBB prophylaxis, one of the things, this this study started in 2020 and it post-dated Prodesky, but it predated Bovino 7. Um, and I would just be so interested in redoing this study in 2025. And our, our unit now, we're adopters of 
the Bovino 7 guidelines, as I'm sure most people are, but um, we're, we're trying to really drill that down and drill that into people's minds and make it front of centre that non-selective beta blockers, particularly in compensated patients, is good. And it does reduce not only, not, not, not necessarily readmission, but reduces admission. And I would love to see this study done again in five years' time in our centre and see that non-selective beta blocker rate not just you know waning at 11 percent, but really being well up above two-thirds and and more because we're never going to get a hundred percent adherence but geez 10 percent seems a bit bit concerning doesn't it it it, it just jumped out as me as a as a figure that that certainly could be improved on and again we are big fans of the for, for those people in the audience perhaps who don't um know the the finer points of of the beta blocker story in cirrhosis we've used beta blockers to prevent variceal bleeding for many many years since the 1980s and good randomized trials but now the paradigm has shifted a little towards um uh, prevention of decompensation in those people who are at high risk of decompensation by virtue of the fact that they're predicted to have clinically significant portal hypertension so this has really changed our practice considerably and, and i think that you know we would also like to look um, at, re- at the patterns of, re- of admission and readmission now that we've made that uh, made that change. So perhaps that's something we can uh, we can work together on, Cole. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would love to chat offline and um, something to, to to speak about as a multi center study. Yeah. So could, could I ask one more question, um, Carl? Going back to those uh, American studies uh, you started with. Um, one of them from Boston had, you know, thirteen percent readmission rates. Other one from Indiana had twenty percent readmission rates. Do you think there was anything special that they're doing in in their standard practice, or were they just receiving a much less sick cohort of liver patients? I think the disparity in results between our study and even the disparity of results within the North Atlantic studies themselves is multifactorial. Um, for one, there's different inclusion-exclusion criteria in, in your cohort that you're looking at. Um, that Boston study, I think, actually excluded patients who had a transplant at any point in that in that study time, not just those who had transplant in hospital. Um, our cohort had a higher meld compared to some of the other studies. Our cohort was a little bit older. Um, so I think you're directly comparing the rate and, and sometimes we fought, but the other kind of factor in, in part of this multifactorial process is that, yes, I do think that there's potentially institutional or geographic factors that may lead to um, reduced readmissions in patients and, and something that occurs in America that, as far as I'm aware, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm so nascent in these aspects, is that in America there is a dedicated program Call the hospital readmission reduction program, and that's subsequent to the reporting. It's there's directed programs to try and reduce readmissions. And as far as I know, that does not exist at least in liver disease in Australia. This is why I, I was very pleased to see this uh, particular paper published. So really, for the first time, you know, we can drill down into the cost of that readmission, and for the, all of those who are driven by quality and trying to do the right things for our patients, we can now say. This is Australian data. These are Australian hospital costs. And this is now the formation of our business case to be able to reduce admissions using whatever strategy we think um, is going to be successful, whether that's um, 
uh, having day hospital type of setup with ambulatory care on the ward for people to drop in or whether it's teams of nurses or whether it's the liver well strategy with multiple allied health inputs. Um, I think this is really a great springboard to those sorts of discussions and really hopefully will energize the field so that we can actually put some real solutions in place for let's be honest a tsunami of liver disease that is coming related to both alcohol and obesity yeah thank thank you both for for such an engaging conversation i think uh, a lot of generalists will be learning from that as well as uh, your colleagues in the specialty thanks a lot thanks so much for having me and yeah thanks again to all my co-authors and particularly adam and paul whose brainchild this was to actually do thank you bacon and again thank you carl Find the research paper by Dr. Vaz and colleagues. Just follow the links from the page recp.edu.au slash podcast. You'll find a full transcript of the podcast there as well, with links to all the citations mentioned. The Internal Medicine Journal is just one of three peer-reviewed publications of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. The others are the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health and the Occupational Medicine Journal. And access is free for all trainees and fellows of the college. These journals aren't possible without the time volunteered by RSCP members to review and edit manuscripts. In the same way, I'm truly grateful for the physicians who've advised me over the year 2022 on how to make these podcasts better. In alphabetic order, I want to thank Adrienne Torda, Amy Hughes, Atif Slim, Beatrice Latold, Duncan Austin, Ellen Taylor, Ilana Ginges, Keith Uy, Lexi Freidenberg, Lisa Mouncey, Marianne Leighton, Massimo Giola, Narges Ayati, Nele Legge, Oliver Dillon, Priya Garg, Rosalind Pizzola, Sayon Chatterjee, Sima Radhakrishnan, Stella Sarlos, Victoria Langton, and Vika Pudyal. Special mention for extra effort needs to go to Joseph Lee, Lisa Tan, Michael Hurd, Philippa Vormold, Rhiannon Mello, Sernway Yeo, and also to Paul Cooper and Lauren Einstein, despite being guests from outside the RACP. It's an honour for me to work with these people and to help in a small way with the important work that you do. Many other training and CPD resources for members can be found at the page elearning.recp.edu.au. These include an online course on genomics in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients and a recent primer on digital health. If you don't find what you're after, please send an email to podcast at recp.edu.au and we'll try and deliver that in future. And if you do like what you hear, please share Pomegranate Health with a friend or leave a review at your favourite pod browser. I'm Mick Cabazzini and this episode was produced on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Yura Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and their ongoing connection to country. Thanks for listening and all the best. <laughs>